Hi there. My name's Ryan Bernston, and this is 50 States of Mind, a cross-country journey to all 50 states to talk to mayors, governors, and voters on both sides of the aisle to figure out what's really going on in the United States. I'll be honest, when I started this trip, I wasn't optimistic about the state of our country. But after visiting our neighborhoods, towns, and communities, I've been given an exciting education that has allowed me to listen, challenge my preconceived notions, and taught me something new. Are you ready? Let's go. Episode 5, Massachusetts. This is 50 States of Mind, Episode 5. We have made it this far. And I'm here with a very, very special guest. What's your name, young Uh, man? My name is Jack. Do you have any other nicknames that you go by? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I just, I, word on the street is, you're also known as, uh, known as Jank. Yes, yeah, yes. um, some of my, uh, close friends know me as Jank. hmm And, uh, tell me where we are right now, and... Uh, we are in your lovely living room in Oxford. Uh, I'm currently studying a MST in creative writing. What the hell is an MST? A Master of Studies. A Master's. Because Oxford's funny, they've got their own terms for things. That's great. So what do you write about? Uh, I write plays about people doing weird things. Aren't all plays about people doing weird things? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're, you've <laughs> mastered the art. Yeah, yeah, so, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to Oxford? Where have you lived before this? Uh, so before this was in my hometown, Stratford upon Avon. Someone famous is from there. Yes. Another playwright <laughs> called William Shakespeare. Wow. Someday they're going to be like, Will Shakespeare and Jank both came from here. <laughs> yes. Um, I get the feeling if they do, it won't be with the same sort of level of praise for either. Why not? They'll be like, Shakespeare wrote th- about people doing weird things. I think I would be... I'd have to be a narcissist to believe that I'm going to be appreciated at the same level that William Shakespeare is. I'd happy to be just a footnote in the history books of Stratford, like a t- like two lines. Does it have to be for your playwriting, or could it be because you like exposed no. yourself to children at a supermarket? It could be for a crime. It could be for um, yeah, something tragic and terrible. I just want my two lines, you know. That's all any of us want. Yeah. What's Stratford upon Avon like? very tourist driven so William Shakespeare is the local industry so you know some sort of towns might you know have a a sort of a local factory or employer it almost feels like in some ways that William Shakespeare is that for Stratford upon Avon because it tourism is the whole industry so for a town of its size or every street has five cafes several restaurants you know it's all kind of geared towards tourism and William Shakespeare so the jobs will never leave? No, unless people just, you know, get a bit bored of William Shakespeare, which could happen. It could. They haven't done it yet, but... No, but... Have you ever noticed tourism sort of dips? Like, is there a year where Shakespeare just isn't really that hot? No. In fact, actually, it was... Uh, there was... I remember reading uh, an article in... It was in the local newspaper, the Stratford Herald... But they were saying that basically when they looked at the figures of how the financial crisis had affected like regions, Stratford as a town had sort of weathered the storm relatively well. Because, of course, people are coming from all over the world. So, you know, even if the UK economy or the sort of the, you know, Europe's economy in general isn't doing too well, there will always be people coming 
from outside of that. So those kind of local industries manage to sort of stay afloat. I've talked to a lot of different mayors about recession-proofing their town. Yeah. And it seems like the solution is just have a very celebrated playwright. How a city would achieve that, I don't know. Well, they need to start funding the the brilliant playwrights. Yeah, of course. Have you ever been to the United States before? Once. I was nine, uh, and I visited New York City. I think it was around June or July of 2001. So it was right before... At least six months. It wasn't enough to sort of, you know... I was there a month ago and you know it was it was a it was a fair distance but yes it was it was certainly 2001 and what were your impressions of America I certainly remember something that was always commented on by uh, me and the, um, the family I was with about just everything being like the portions of everything being bigger but I say that as I was a big kid and I've always liked to eat so that that said with like an air of excitement finally someone who's cooking for how much I can eat uh, I think the, my nine-year-old view of it would have been quite sort of monotone. It would have been through popular culture. So, like, New York would have been America for me, if that makes sense. Like, that would have been the view. I think I'm certainly more aware of it now as, like, I'm aware that saying I've been to New York, I can't really say I've been to America because that's su- such a far-reaching term. Every state, and I think I've bet- particularly learned this over the past year, meeting people because the joy of Oxford is sort of people from all around, meeting people from different parts of America, how they differ from each other and how they see their America differing from each other as well. Um, so I see it as a very expansive place now um, and a place that if I was ever to visit again, I'd probably want to move around and I'm you know I'm not just saying this to be like because you've recently gone on a road trip but I think it's somewhere that if I went made that journey again I'd want it to be to see at least several different spots in order to get more of a sort of view of the place is there a place on your list that you really want to visit uh I'd love to see some of the national parks um so Yosemite uh Yellowstone it is Yosemite isn't it it's Yosemite is that how you say it? Yes. No, you're... <laughs> can I swear on this? I'll cut it. I'd really like to go to Austin, Texas. I feel mm. like that's like a really interesting bit. It's quite hippie-ish, isn't it? It was. Oh, it was. Okay. It's gotten... Um, the tech bros have arrived. Oh, no. So the glass so towers So are... now all the fun, cool stuff is like really expensive and they've probably like isolated it from the rest of the community. Nailed it, oh, yeah. Oh, God. They love doing that, don't they? Yeah. Well, I should go to Yosemite before... Yep. The tech bros mm-hmm. get there. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Google's new headquarters. <laughs> Google Yosemite. <laughs> Do you have a question that you've always uh, had about American culture or politics or just the people you've always wanted to ask a willing answerer? Um, would there, because of course in the UK we're used to talking about the idea of like uh, places splitting off from the UK. So obviously recently there's been, you know, talk of Scotland um, leaving. Is that... Does that ever come up in U.S. politics, or is there? Do you could you uh, perceive a future in which it's you no longer the United States of America as we see it now? I appreciate things like the Civil War and stuff was very. Much, I'm not denying the history, but I mean, as in from outside, we could see it very much as because America is such a powerful country. You also kind of I don't know assume a sort of a, a clear focus of what that means to be part of that nation if you see what I mean, but I'm just interested from the inside. I certainly know there's political divides now, but could you ever really see a sort of a state going goodbye? I think you brought up the civil war, which is really important. I think that was sort of the litmus test for what happens when people leave. We take 
I mean, we fight hard against each other. We have huge disagreements politically, culturally. But I think at the end of the day, the idea of anyone leaving would bother someone, even okay. to the most liberal liberal in New York City. Yeah. They said, all right, do you want Wyoming to leave? They'd be like, no, 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 that's part of us. And I think in Wyoming, okay, they'd say the, the same thing. But I think the contenders are California, Texas, Alaska, and, oh, okay. and Hawaii. Because Alaska and Hawaii are the most recent additions mm. to the union. Yeah, yeah, and Hawaii was its own... Before that was its own sovereign entity, sovereign nation. Yeah, royal family. Yeah, queen, yeah. 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 Actually, back in 2008, when Sarah Palin was a part of the national conversation, okay, yes. uh, her husband was a part of the Alaska Independence Party. Oh, okay. So it's still alive and well. And even yeah, yeah. going to Hawaii, I talked to some uh, indigenous people from mm. Hawaii, and they walked me through the history of how it all went down. And they're like, this is not, this is not legal, this occupation of Hawaii. They didn't okay. even see themselves as properly a part of the union. So there are things That's that are under the surface, but it's not like the Parti Québécois in Canada where they're blowing things up. It's not like there's a okay, yeah, Hawaiian yeah, terrorist not... group or a Texas secession IRA. Do you think that's because America has such quite a, you know, quite a clear sort of foundation myth? You know, there's a lot of stories about sort of America's foundation, whereas, for instance, in the UK, um, our history is sort of kind of muddled. Like, we don't have a constitution. There's, you know, the UK, people outside of it and also inside of it, I think, are maybe confused about what that means. If you see, uh, um, whereas America, there's a very clear sort of, this is this is what it means to be an American. This is what it means to be part of the United States. And do you think that sort of helps add to that sense of, I may disagree with you, or I may even have certain views about people from that state that I don't belong to, but we're all still part of this kind of national, I don't know, ideal or aim or, you know, myth, you know, yeah. I think myth is actually such a good word for it because for all of America's faults, the narrative is so clear and so there. And I think a lot of politicians play into that narrative of freedom. We were mm. the rebels who became the beacon of democracy around the world. And I think that myth is what's going to keep us together. And it's when we get away from that, that there start to be problems. Because when we focus on all the things that are wrong, there are plenty of things that are wrong. We, we lose the sort of miracle that is the United States. And I think American exceptionalism comes from this idea that we actually did do a pretty cool thing. Have you seen Hamilton? I haven't, I'm afraid. I really want to. But yeah. Even listening yeah. to the soundtrack is great, but it's it's one of the most unironically positive messages about what America is. And I don't think very many other nations have it. I mean, when you look back on British history, there's no formative moment oh, God, where no, you become no, 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 England, no. right? No, and even that great... I think a lot of people in the UK have a sort of appreciation for their history, but I think because it's so muddled, also a lack of understanding of it. Like the Magna Carta, from what I know, and I may be completely wrong with this, in the end, it was really more about sort of the Lord saying to the king, you can't have as much power, we have to have some. Like it wasn't a sort of the the people rising up. It was another sort of faculty of power saying to another one, no, you can't have that much. We should have more. Like it wasn't, you know, it doesn't have the same potency as the American sort of founding myths, because that's very much about sort of, yeah, people rising up. Yeah, I don't think we have necessarily that same focus in the UK, I don't think. So I know there's a lot of suspense about what mm -hmm. state we're going to be talking about today. Oh, gotcha, yes. 
So, um, what do you know about the state of Massachusetts? Oh, Massachusetts. Absolutely nothing, I would say. Uh, Massachusetts, one of, one of like the older states in the sense of being part of a union that sort of predates the current United States. Is Boston in Massachusetts? Yeah, so yeah, it's like an, what I would see as an old state in the sense of it's got a sort of a slightly older history than maybe some of the other ones. Uh, Plymouth Rock is there. Ah, okay. I think. Pilgrims, Plymouth Rock. Yeah. The Puritans. Do you know, I know that, I think, from the song of um, Anything Goes, from the musical Anything Goes. <laughs> what, what's the lyric? I'm not singing. No, I'm I'm you, not can, singing. you can recite it's it. When, it's something just like when... Uh, when the Plymouth, uh, when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, and then somehow she segues into now anything goes, and then they talk about people wearing short skirts and stuff like that. When they landed on Plymouth Rock, that's exactly what's, what I had in my head, but I wasn't. What's the next line? Try. Oh, but Plymouth Rock landed on them, or something. Or, or oh it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's one of those like classic from musicals of the time. Like they're just finding some way of vaguely introducing the subject matter for the song. So they're like, oh, say something. Oh, we'll talk about the Pilgrims at Plymouth Rock now. Oh, anything goes. And then it's like it talks about women playing tennis as if that's shocking. So the first interview I have for you today, oh, okay. cooked up, is with the mayor of Boston. That's cool. What's their name? His name is Marty Walsh, and he ha- he's a great illustration of a Boston accent. Okay, okay, cool. Um, I met him at a Get Out the Vote event, which mm. featured the cast of Hamilton. Wow. The touring cast, so they're all there. And sorry, the Get, uh, get Out the Vote. Oh, Get Out the Vote. It's, it's um, I was there right before the midterm election, so Get Out the Vote is like, oh, okay, vote. come meet the mayor and uh, okay. also vote. Like getting people involved in... Like yes. local democracy and okay, cool. All right, let's listen. Okay, can you talk about the importance of local government right now in this age where everything oh, yeah. seems to be about national politics? Uh, I was at an event last night. I was talking about the heart and soul of our country is is our local governments and, and our state governments. And I think that you know, regardless of what type of conversations come out of Washington, whether you agree with them or not, um, it all comes back to being local. It all comes back to local. And I'm part of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And it's a bipartisan group of mayors, um, and you know we rally around issues like climate change, like immigration, like economic development, like housing, like the opioid crisis, and we don't let most of us don't let the national conversation cloud our job accomplishments. So, what do you think of the Boston accent? I like it. It's nice. I I'm. It took me a few minutes to tune into it, but by the end, big fan. Can you give me your best Boston Absolutely accent? Absolutely not. Absolutely Just come not. on. I am not, I'm not going to, on a recording, do a Boston accent. I generally, I have not just heard three minutes of a Boston accent. You're like, do your best, though. Absolutely It's a not. game. It's No, I'm... it's a game I'm not playing. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely not. Okay, that's, that's valid. Um, what did you think of the content? I heard him talking about, like, the sort of the big national issues, like immigration, climate change, I think, came up. And he was talking about how that affects sort of local politics. Was he sort of saying he has to keep those out of his mind when he's talking about local politics? Well, he was kind of saying that he's a part of the National Conference of Mayors and that uh, they're okay. the real problem solvers. They need to find uh, okay, the solutions on the ground yeah, as, yeah. because they don't feel like there's a yeah. lot of support from the higher levels. 
Is that because it's easier to work on sort of issues at a local level than it is to deal with them on a national level? Did yeah, you, did you I, mention that? Right I now? think that's sort of what you're saying because it's easier to get consensus. And also, when you're dealing with things in your own community, things tend to get a little less political. So instead okay. of talking about climate change, it's like Fenway Park is flooded. Yes, okay. And it's like, you have to deal uh, with that. Yes, because if I can do a little callback, the mayor of that, I've forgotten her name, but she was talking about how you don't talk about climate change, you talk about, to farmers in the in, in this instance, she was like, oh, you, but you talk about how the weather has changed. So yes, yeah, well, I suppose that's natural because we live in such a global world now. Like, the global news is getting to you. It doesn't matter where you are, like, even if you're sort of out in the sticks, we're kind of being bombarded by sort of global information, which I, humans, I don't think are particularly good at processing that. You know, hearing so-and-so has died, being given a name and a face, you can like really attach to that. But when you hear of a natural disaster, for instance, halfway across the world, killing so many thousand, you obviously, m- most people go, that's terrible. But you don't have the same emotional connection because we can't really fathom those numbers. So I suppose that relates to politics as well locally it's easy for you to go yes this part of town keeps getting flooded the rivers seem to be flooding more than they used to that's an issue that we can fathom but the kind of the intricacies of kind of global climate science most people can't comprehend that we can sort of go i understand something is happening but we're not all climate scientists we can't all sort of understand that to like a a minuscule level. Exactly. And you you think about it, and we've never been in a position where, thanks to the internet, we can be aware of these big global, Mm. broader issues. We are just wired to see what's tangible in front of us in our community and solve those problems. And I think that's why mayors are such good problem Mm. solvers, because they live in the community and they're aware of it. They're not set apart making decisions for a region that they might never never visit. Yeah, well, I suppose... um communities larger than a certain size are part of the kind of the this kind of rapid development of the human race that has only really happened over x amount of thousands of years um so yes we're not necessarily we've developed to a point where our communities that we identify with you know the idea of a state for instance are much larger than maybe we're sort of able to comprehend or deal with yeah yeah all right i'm going to move to a new Okay. A new interview. I'm not even sure if this one's good or it's going to stay in. The Get Out the Vote event was at a municipal government building in yep. Roxbury, which is sort of a not historically great neighborhood. Okay. Um, and I took the bus all the way out there. I didn't really know what I was in for. I was a little hungover because the night before was the World Series games for the Red Sox. The Red Sox, it's all about the Sox. Okay. They love yeah. the Sox. Okay. Um, and we were at a bar watching the game. And it was the longest World Series game in history. So it started about eight and it went until about five in the morning. I love sports. I love, I, give me a sport and I'm there. That's me. That's me. That's That's all my friends call me Sporty Jang. That's very on, very on brand for you. So I walk into this restaurant. I'm very hungover. I need a breakfast sandwich. And I walk in and there's this guy and he extends his hand and he shakes my hand. I'm like, oh my gosh, the maitre d'. He said, hey, how you doing today? I'm George. I'm like, hey, I'm Ryan. He's like, what's, what's up, Ryan? I'm like, well, I'm traveling to all 50 states and I want to try some local cuisine. So I'd love to hear what's good on this menu. He's like, huh, well, I'm George. I'm very hungry and I would like you to buy me some breakfast. 
Oh, okay. So I thought it was like the owner of the restaurant. Uh, Turns okay, out, yeah. um, I don't know if he was homeless, but uh, he needed someone to buy him a breakfast. So I sort of was like, uh, sure. And so I go up to the counter with him. I'm like, you know, I'd like to buy my friend George a breakfast. And I look up at breakfast sandwiches are like two fifty. Okay, yeah. He's like, yeah, I just want like a like an egg and cheese sandwich. So I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, I'll take an egg and mm, actually, mm, I'm, I'm gonna get an egg, cheese, and bacon sandwich. Okay, that's three fifty. He's like, and uh, sorry, some home fries. I'm like, okay, that's like five fifty. He's like, and uh, double latte, please. And, double latte. And the woman was like, uh, and anything for you? I was like, nope, because I had no money. <laughs> oh no. Okay. So he like, ordered this so... nine dollar meal, and so I was like, while well, we waited, it was kind of awkward because he had just taken advantage of me. So I was like, uh, so do you want to be interviewed? So this is my interview with George. So, can you uh, say your name and tell me where you live? And, my, name, my name is George, and I do live in the Dudley and Boston area. Amazing. How long have you been here? Four years. Four years. Uh, like this area, at first I was a little skeptical about moving in here, you know, because of the he say, she say. What's well, the he said, she said? Well, it's a bit basically tough area to live in. Okay. You know? So, um, I moved in and uh, I found it to be con- con- contrary to it, you know what I mean? I mean, I like the area. I mean, you've got everything here. This is prime area. Look, you've got all the surf shop. You have the chicken restaurant. You have this breakfast place. You have the barber shop. It's prime area. You've got all the, the libraries across the street. You've got the court, district mm-hmm. courts across the street. And uh, you have the big municipal building right here. This is all brand new. Yeah. Look at this area. Uh, you know, so so are they trying like, to put yeah. in restaurants and things to attract people yeah, to the this area? This is all brand new, and uh, the real estate is actually uh, excellent here, you know, price-wise. You know, it's a little cheaper. We have a lot of college students that come in to live here in this area because they can't afford to rent in Brighton or Boston or uh, right. you know, uh, in town, uh, Cambridge. You know, it's very expensive, and they move in here. They they live here actually. Several, well, you know, a lot of them, and it's it's convenient for them. They can commute. I mean, it's only a bus ride. You have the bus stuff right here. What Why did you pick Boston to live in? In general, because you're from the Ivory Coast. Yes, correct? I was born in Ivory Coast. I came in to actually um, finish my education here after my bachelor's overseas, uh-huh. and I actually uh, my family's from Rhode Island originally. Oh, nice. And uh, I I actually you know came to a party once here with. Friends and uh, I met my uh, my wife, you know, my ex-wife. You know, okay. Ex now, but I met her here and uh, I married in Boston. And I stayed in Boston ever since. I do commute back and forth to Rhode Island, actually, other states to visit family members and so forth. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for talking and answering my questions. Very good. No problem, my friend. Um, Pleasure to meet you. I'm gonna head next door. You enjoy your breakfast okay. and uh, thanks for talking thank to me. Did he? Um. Okay. Uh. <laughs> Wow, that's interesting. I mean, he he knew a lot about the area. There was, I mean, there was talk about like real estate, like the type of people. Did he was saying students like living there because it's affordable? Um, Yeah, I mean, he. I'm not interested in your opinions on what he had to say. Did he? Maybe. I mean, there's no reason why he couldn't be someone who's just learned that. You know, if you're confident enough, and if you just go, will you buy me breakfast? Did, did he say, will you buy me breakfast? Or he was like, if you buy... Like, he says, I need you to buy me breakfast. I, I can't remember. To, that's in, that's interesting. The, like, what phrasing... I guess if I went up to you, I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm Ryan, I'm hungry, and I'd really like some dinner. What would you say? That I would say, uh, 
lovely than what you bloody are making. Um, no, that's interesting because there's something very, very assured about that. That that feels like something. It feels like the type of language you'd come across in like a, you know, like one of those business sort of self help books of like this. This is how you. This is how you enter the. This is how you enter like the negotiation space. You say hello. I'm Jack. I'm looking Jank. for about Jank. I'm looking for about fifty percent on this deal, um, and I'm hoping we can make further connections. I don't know something vaguely businessy. So you're saying maybe he's part of like a business training program, and this was part of. <laughs> <laughs> they said you have to go out and get someone to buy you breakfast. You never know, but I feel he would probably tell you that after. It, it, it could be that I, this is my story about George is. Previously successful, did very well for himself, found himself on hard times, but has used those skills that he's learned. Do you know what? I wish George the best of luck. Me too. You know what? Of all I the... think we've learned something from George. You need to go into every relationship and stay to your attentions. I think I need to change the genre of this podcast. Yeah. Business and leadership, <laughs> not travel. I have one final interview for you. Great. This is with a guy um, named Quentin Palfrey. Wow. You know him? No, I just... It's what a name. Great name. I imagine Quentin wearing a waistcoat, but like a sort of Victorian waistcoat with like a pattern on it. And maybe having like, you know, those like ruffled sleeves that are like, you tie them up, but they're open. And he's like kind of... And maybe has a cocktail in his hand. Well, he worked in the Obama administration and okay. he was running for lieutenant governor of... Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Do you guys have states and governors and things like that? Not mm. really, right? You just have mayors. No, uh, we do have mayors, but um, elected mayors are quite a new thing for us in big cities. Oh, really? So only recently we had a whole string of elected mayors for, I think it was Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, and a couple of other places. And it was the first time that there had been like campaigns by specific political parties to like get a mayorship of a city. Because before that, I think we've more had... Obviously, London has had an elected mayor for some time. But still, I think that's more recent history than it is... I think elected mayor in London might be um, 90s, 80s onwards. Really? I don't think... I do Because there's also a... You can also be... There's a mayor and then there's a Lord Mayor of London, which is selected by the members Queen. of... Uh, is it the Privy Council? No, not selected by the Queen. It's a particular group of people that run the city. You know, the square mile uh, in London. Uh, yeah, we have a very different system here. It's, yeah, very different. So before mayors were selected by a council and then they were... Uh, yes, they weren't elected. They were selected by elected members of councils, if that makes sense in local area. So you so elect councillors. Yeah, you don't have to think about the one thing and then they'll yeah, be and then, and then they and then they pick a mayor. Um, and in some places it's more symbolic than it is in towns. It's like, if you're mayor of Stratford then... In the newspapers, when they're talking about politics, they're talking to councillors. They're not talking to the mayor because the mayor is almost like a symbolic role. So they go and like cut ribbons and yeah, and they have like, have you ever seen? Have you ever seen like a mayor in the? Yeah, they'll wear like a fancy necklace. Someone is usually standing next to them with like a mace thing. It's all very like a mace. Uh, you know, like um, not a mace, but a sort of a long metal pole with like a crown-like thing on top, like a scepter. Yeah, like a scepter, but originally their history is something that would have been used as, like, a weapon. It was, like, something used to protect the mayor because you just whack someone with it. But then they became, like, decorative and ceremonial, as almost everything has in the UK. Um, okay, so we're going to listen to... Quentin. 
So Massachusetts has a wonderful tradition of leadership. If you think about it, the American Revolution began here. The American Constitution was born here. We had the first public parks, the first public schools. Uh, we were the heart of the abolitionist movement against slavery. We played an important role in the women's suffrage movement. We led the way on equal marriage. We led the way on universal access to health care. Um, and so I think one of the wonderful things about Massachusetts is that we've always been a leader. Going off of that, you've been at the national level and crafted important policy, and now you're at the state level. What do you think the role of the state government is and what the state government is able to control versus the federal government? So I think this is a really important question, particularly particularly in the Trump era. Um, so... Uh, state governments have always been innovators. Supreme Court Justice uh, Brandeis used to talk about states as the laboratories of democracy. Um, and I think that in many ways, um, states can be innovative um, and can lead on policy. Do you think that the federal government in crafting policy should create policies in a state-by-state -state way and sort of say there are certain policies that will work in certain places and certain policies that will work in other places based on this laboratory approach? I think there are certain kinds of policies that work better um, at a local level and certain kinds of policies that work better at a national level or an international level. So, for example, the best way to deal with a climate crisis um, which is the, one of the greatest threats our planet has ever faced. Our grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren grandchildren will suffer the consequences of inaction or will benefit from preventative efforts. The best way to deal with that is at the international level. So President Obama's efforts, uh, Secretary Kerry's efforts with respect to the Paris Agreement, were partially around the question of the U.S.'s uh, obligations under that treaty. Partially, it was about drawing in India, drawing in China, setting an international set of norms um, for dealing with a crisis that is planetary in nature. Now, uh, we desperately need regional consortia and state governments and city governments to step up, not because that's the best level at which to deal with the problem, but because that's the only lever that's available to us. And of course, we should be thinking locally and, 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 and I mean, acting locally and thinking globally. Um, but now we're in a position where there's so much more of a burden on uh, those local uh, decision makers because of a failure at the international and the national level. There are other kinds of problems that work better in a very local way. Uh, because uh, the you know because the challenges are are very specific and they're felt at a local level. So I think that it's not so much a question of you know does it make sense for states to lead or for fe the federal government to lead um, on some issues it's one on some issues the other um, and in most issues it's both. I think I have this correct. You're the great great grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. That's right. What do you think he would think about his Republican Party? Is it his Republican Party anymore? What would he think about the state of the country? I've been very inspired by his legacy, by Theodore Roosevelt's legacy. I think that um, he was a progressive in a lot of really important ways, and a few of them have been inspiring to me. One is that he was very progressive on environmental protection, um, well ahead of his time. So a fair amount of the national park system 
um, comes about as a result of his legacy of conservation. Um, and um, I think that we need that kind of leadership um, in terms of environmental stewardship now more than ever. He was also a leader in standing up against corporate power. Um, uh, President Roosevelt was, uh, you know, famous as a trust buster, was very concerned about the power of uh, large corporations distorting our democracy, distorting our economy in a way that I think was quite prescient. Very interesting. So Teddy, wait, Teddy Roosevelt's... Roosevelt. Roosevelt, sorry. It could be Roosevelt. Okay, Roosevelt. You say Roosevelt. (laughs) Do you want someone, sorry, this is completely off subject, someone told me last night that they were, for some reason, sitting in on an audition for something, and someone sang that song, You Say Tomato, I Say Tomato, but didn't get that they have to be different. You say tomato, I say tomato. (laughs) You say potato, I say potato. Completely changes the song. Completely changed. Do you think it's just it was like an intentional choice. It almost it, sounds like no. I think it was just uh, they. They said it was generally just a lack of understanding of what that song was about. <laughs> and I, I can't get over that because I think what fascinates me about that is there is nothing. If you looked at the music and the lyrics of the song. You would just be like, okay, this is a song about people repeating each other, or I don't know, like, you say tomato, I say tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. Yeah, let's call the whole thing off, because we just say the same thing, I don't know, like... <laughs> it's, that's what I love about musical theatre, it's about people doing weird things. Yeah. Yeah. Just like regular theatre. Back to Quentin, any other... Sorry, yes, uh, no, I was just really interested by the fact that he is uh, a relative of Teddy... Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Um, that just interests me because in, I don't know, I suppose American politics, again, one of the, please tell me if I'm wrong, one of the founding things is the idea that you wouldn't have, I don't know, things like lords and ladies, like dynasties. But it's interesting because there's a lot of dynasties in American politics. You have the Kennedys. I suppose now you could argue that the Trumps have the start of that because obviously the the whole sort of Trump family is kind of involved. Um, you have the Clintons, obviously a famous one. The Bushes. The Bushes, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, sort of the American uh, political dynasties. It's funny because when I brought it up, I didn't put this in the recording. He was like, you know, I really don't like to talk about that because I don't want people to think oh, that I'm like God. some part of a privileged okay. dynasty. Yeah, of course. And I said, okay, you're like, he was your great-great-grandfather and you have different last names. But I, I understand where he's coming from, from for, for the first time now. It was interesting because he mentioned, um, obviously, Teddy Roosevelt, because I mentioned I'd l- love to see the national parks of America. And Teddy Roosevelt, was he was big He was big on the outdoors, wasn't he? he it's amazing you know that. Do they teach you that in school? Or uh, no, no, no. We don't learn uh, really anything. From what I remember, we don't learn anything about American politics. I think we do obviously touch on the wars of independence, but really not much. I, that tells you something about how we learn history here. I think it's sort of like, oh, yes. And then we had a war with America and they won independence. Anyway, so back to the Battle of Hastings, 1066, oh, I don't know. Like, um, I, I, think it, I think it's touched upon. Um, of course, there's a lot of history to touch on, upon, but I think, I think, I do think the way we teach history is maybe a bit sort of biased in the UK in a sense of like looking at our, what I deem to be our achievements. But anyway, that's a, that's a whole different thing. No, I learned that because I watched a, on Netflix, a 10 part documentary about um, the Roosevelt family. Is it PB? Is it from PBS or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that 
I found just really interesting because it looks at such, I mean, it looks at such a breadth of history because the gap between like Teddy Roosevelt's day and um, FDR is obviously quite expansive. Roosevelt's number one was 1901 through 1908 and Roosevelt number two was 32 through 45. Okay. So like, you know, a large part of like the 20th century and some during some of the most like major global like political upheavals and just a fascinating family in their differences as well because of course um fdr sort of went rogue when he went with the because he he was democrat wasn't he he wasn't republican like teddy Mm -hmm. and i think that maybe caused not issues but i think i think i think teddy had something to say about that didn't he he was yeah well he had some hard feelings because basically he was president for two terms, mm-hmm. and then he passed the baton to this Republican named Taft. Who was oh, yes. The guy couldn't fit in the bathtub, so they had to make a new bathtub. And then he was mad about the way he was handling his administration, so he ran as a third party called the Bull Moose Party. Uh, yes. And then that's when Wilson got elected. And so, anyway, I, I don't think he had a good taste in his mouth about the Republican Party. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. So I've got so focused on that, I've forgotten what he was talking about. Oh, and then he was talking about, again, sort of local politics, states being the, uh, the laboratories of democracy, mm-hmm. which was very interesting. And I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, I just thought it was a good phrase because I think everyone in America acts like federal policy is the only policy, but mm. actually you have so much agency in your local and state government to sort of say, look, we have universal health care in... Nebraska, they don't, but why not try it, you know? Okay, yes. Yeah, well, I suppose that's, again, the interesting thing about America is states do have quite a lot of control beyond the federal, mm-hmm. um, which uh, in some ways at a federal level must make it quite hard to go. I'm We're bringing in this one rule of this one thing that will work across all states when I can imagine also because states have such identities, there's some that almost go against that because they're like, no, this is that you can't like we're our state, you know, again, this may be biased, but I think it's maybe somewhere like Texas because isn't their thing, the Lone Star State. And that sort of suggests a, a, a kind of a relationship of, oh, we're part of the United States, but also we're Texas. And yeah. That, and what we do matters. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, that's spot on. And that's why they were sort of on that list of places that could secede. I'm not sure. Oh, yes. Would. OK. Yeah, yes. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you think back to 2015 where. Before that, states were individually legalizing same-sex marriage uh, via the legislature, like in Massachusetts, okay. uh, Vermont, Iowa, uh, Illinois, yeah. uh, New York, a handful of others. And on ballots like Maine, they actually passed a referendum. So it was the first time that voters legalized same-sex marriage uh, by their actual votes, not okay. by the yes. representatives. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, 2015, just everywhere. It was just legal everywhere. Um, so it went from states sort of having that self-determination oh, I see. to okay. all of a sudden it's a law of okay, the land. Yeah, yeah. So the Supreme Court has a lot of power in that in that respect. But it's very different. Very different. Very different to the UK system. Yeah, where the Queen is just like... Chop off their heads. <laughs> How does that... Because it's interesting, he listed off, like, Massachusetts as, you know, we were the first people to do this, we were the first people to do that, blah, blah, blah. With these kind of... Uh, older states in you know quotation marks is there like a hierarchy there or do people perceive like 
oh, Massachusetts sees themselves as above Midwestern states, or the states that kind of came later or uh, don't have the same sort of foundational myths? Is there a perceived hierarchy there? I've actually never been asked that before or thought about that. I think there is, because if you look at political power, Massachusetts historically has so much. I mean, that's where John Adams came from. I mean, really, in the first few years of the United States, it was all politicians from Boston, Massachusetts, or Virginia. Right, Um, okay. So sort of the two, there's sort of the rural and... Massachusetts represented sort of the urban, industrialized East Coast. There is this idea that because it's older and tends to be more progressive, more affluent. Is it, It's next to Connecticut, is it? Is that correct? Or is it close to... It's very close to... Yeah, okay. it's right above Connecticut. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how I drove through. Because I think I, I perceive from the little I know, like Connecticut's also a very like wealthy, wealthy state as well. Mm-hmm. That's a, basically a suburb of New York. Okay, right, okay. So, so people yeah. live in Connecticut. Yeah. Commuting. So it's like the home counties in the UK then. You've got the, the I nearly said states then, the counties that surround like London, but are in the countryside, like the commuters that you have London, um, this sort of, you know, big, uh, important city. And then you have, yeah, what they call the home counties, the area that surrounds it. And that comes with certain, certain ideals and things like, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And everything's so close together out there that it's, uh, when I started the trip and I was driving through the East Coast states, I'm like, oh, this is a breeze, like two hour drive, three hour drive, then I'm out in the West and it's like, all right, this will be a 12 hour drive from (sighs) one place to another. And what, yeah, that's interesting because then what does, uh, distance and space, how does that reflect on how people perceive politics or think about politics? Because also if you're in somewhere like, uh, you know, Massachusetts, you're so close to so much that's going on. You've got Boston, you've got the big universities, you're relatively close to New York. But if, let's say, you're out in the sticks somewhere, what does that physical difference, how does that, how does that change how you perceive politics? You are so clued into what this trip is all about, because until you actually see the difference of what space does to people politically, it's tough to comprehend or understand. I'm glad you brought that up, because... It's like we were talking about earlier, when you can see something, when something's tangible in your community, I think there's a different way to approach those issues. When you live alongside people in a very concentrated area and you can't really get away from people, I think you're a little more clued into society um, and maybe the responsibilities of society. And that's why the East Coast maybe tends to be liberal. And you go to a place like Wyoming, a state that has 700,000 people. There's this sort of okay. independence. I think I saw a billboard that says, um, where regulation begins, freedom dies. Oh, wow. And there's a like a very active disdain for telling me what to do. And there's this sort of frontiersman attitude of being hmm. out there and sort of having autonomy and independence, which isn't bad. But I don't think it comes from the same tradition that the East Coast has, which is very much living alongside other people, even Mm. in the states that have rural areas um, like Vermont. Uh, But I think space actually really does affect the way people interact with each other in a political sense. Mm. And of course, space can be uh, political distance can be like a psychological thing as well. Because for instance, the UK is really kind of compared to most countries, like quite small and also very concentrated in terms of the space we have. We have a 
a high population. But the difference, for instance, between someone living in London and someone living in, let's say, Grimsby, which is an old uh, fishing town, uh, which I only mentioned because I read something recently about it was like a big leave voting area. Mm. Um, it's just interesting because, of course, in the UK, we don't have that uh, physical space. But there is a certainly there's also like a psychological expanse between certain areas um, in terms of how people, view, you know, you've got London, you know, high uh, sort of high immigration, uh, very multicultural, big remain. And then you've got areas that are low immigration, but also they've been ignored kind of in terms of investment and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting in the U.S., though, is we have 50 capital cities. Of, yeah. And yeah. but it's amazing the. The variations, for example, Boston is the capital of Massachusetts. Mm. It's the largest city. And then you go to a place like South Dakota and the capital is Pierre, which has 20,000 people. It's in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. Not that there are particularly that many people in the cities in South Dakota, but the greatest, the most populous cities, Sioux Falls and uh, Grand Rapids. Oh, okay. So you're saying that in some states, their most populous city isn't necessarily their capital. Absolutely. And Washington, you'd think Seattle would be the capital, but it's actually Olympia. California, you'd think the capital would be LA or San Francisco. But is it Sacramento? Damn, boy. There we go. Jank, it's been a real pleasure. And what I like is how in agreement we are on so many things. It's like, I say potato. And I say potato. <laughs> you say potato. And I say potato? No, I think I was just. I know, but you, you said the same thing. So oh, did I? You say tomato next. I you say, say potato, I say potato. You say tomato, I say tomato. Let's let's call the whole thing. Let's off. call the whole thing off. Let's call the whole thing off. Um, see you on a future episode. But for now, let's call the whole thing off. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for listening. For more information about Fifty States of Mind, visit us on our website, five zero statesofmind.org. or like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at 50 States of Mind. A big thank you to the band Bright Moments for the use of their song Travelers from the album Natives. Questions? Send us an email at 50statesofmindusa at gmail.com. See you next time.